Hello everybody, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. This is just to let you know that the Cinema Catch-Up Club has an official Patreon page. If you'd like to become an official member of the club and get some bonus goodies, including early access material and bonus features only available to our patrons, then please join up at patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast. And now for this week's episode. Hello everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode, and this week, ooh, it's a biggie. It's Gone with the Wind, released on... Uh, December 1939, meaning it's 80 years old, and we're reviewing it today. Yes, the whole GD thing. It's a long film, so if you're watching along with us, Godspeed, everybody. Joining me, we have, as always, someone who's seen it and someone who has not. Our guest who has not seen it and making his first ever appearance on the show, it's Andrew Dawson. I can applaud myself, right? Of course you yeah, can. that's fine. Yeah. That means it doesn't sound like one person's yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> really awkward. <laughs> How you doing, Dawson? Yeah, great. I heard it was a really long film. I heard that it has an intermission. It certainly does. So and an overture. And yeah, if it says overture at the start, and I know there's an intermission, I'm settling myself in for a bumpy ride. Mm. Well, we have snacks. We're indoors. It's quite nice. We're, we're good to go. Uh, but Dawson, uh, the folks yes. at home may not know who you are or what you do. So, who are you, Andrew Dawson, and what do you do? Um, well, I'm Andrew Dawson, more commonly known as Dawson. Um, I am an actor or performer around Perth. Mm-hmm. And I also like napping. I mean, napping is pretty good. Yeah. You may get a chance during this film, depending on how it goes. <laughs> we'll see. If I fall asleep, just poke me, prod mm. me. Intermission. That's what intermission's yeah, for. That's yeah, that's what it's for. We all have Quick. a little nap. <laughs> um, so, Gone with the Wind, then. What, what do you know about it? Actually, nothing. Mm. Um, I've heard it thrown around before. I know that it's old. Um, it's the kind of film that's always put into those... Uh, you know those jokes where it's like title of your movie for your poo oh okay. like the toilet jokes so like movie titles that reference like a bowel movement yeah so like gone with, gone the, with wind. the wind yeah it's one that always shows the dirty up dozen in... yeah exactly the fast and the furious <laughs> usual suspects yeah cloudy with the chance of meatballs yeah um yeah, yeah. It's, it's one that always shows up in those jokes and that's about as much as i know about it duck soup mm. <laughs> um oh and that has intermission and that it's long Excellent. Well, that's that's hey, that's that's all you need to know because uh, we got the film here. We're gonna we're gonna learn together about what this film is. Uh, someone who has seen the film though is sat next to you. It's Tegan Mulvaney. Hello. Yes. Clap 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 clap. Uh, Tegan. Um, yes. It, this isn't your first one, but I'm gonna ask you anyway. Who are you, Tegan, and what do you do? Ah, uh, just a gal looking at a guy, holding a microphone. Um, yeah. I'm. Uh, I'm not gonna say I'm a comedian after that. No, no, you can. Maybe I can. Yeah. There are lots of not like funny I, comedians. It's like, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> good night, everybody. <laughs> good night. Uh, you have seen Gone with the yes, Wind. Yes, I have. Um, what, what can you tell us about it in a vague, non-spoilery sort of way? Um, it's it's more fun than you'd expect, I reckon. I'm going to say that because okay. 
I what the first time I watched this was when I was 15 and I was really sick one day I was home from school and I was like well what do you do for the six hours that you're home from school when it's not six hours is it no 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 it's only four, <laughs> it's only four hours oh, but you know you've got to waste time and it, I think I'd realized that Ricky Lake had been cancelled by that point so I was right. like well my day's ruined mm. so I put the VHS of this on yeah thinking I'll just fall asleep to it, but I just kept watching it. It was really fun and okay. it's really silly and performances are beautiful. Mm. Um, it looks beautiful. It's amusing as you get older watching it and you realise how historically incorrect it is at times as mm. well. That's quite fun. Mm. Um, and I'm really keen to watch it again because I haven't watched it for, for quite a few years. And I saw Hamilton this year and I'm really mm. keen to see the... Um, so, Hamilton's about the Civil War as well. Mm. So, I'm really keen to see like what parts kind of working together because they're mm. from like different sides of yeah. the story. So yeah, because this focuses on a, the South. This is the South. Yeah, yeah this is this, the Southerners. So, so, it's a very important film mm. uh, as well as far as like... Um, uh, civil rights go with the um, even the African American community in film and things. There's mm. a lot of, I know we'll talk about that later. Oh, but yes. that's, I think this film kind of pinpoints a real importance in that in that stuff as well. Mm. There is a lot to delve into there, mm. which we uh, will be doing in the next section of the program. How many um, cabinet rap battles are there in Gone with the Wind, though? <sighs> Look, maybe one or two. Yeah. It's just Rhett, but it's Rhett and Scarlet. Yeah. Just like, you know, have, having it out with Olivia de Havilland in the background. Yeah. Scarlet, you're Harley. You know, I'm going to cut you. You shouldn't mess with motherfucking Butler. Like, is that how it goes? <laughs> it's more like, um, Scarlet, this business, you know, I got to cram. Frankly, my dear, I do not give a damn. <laughs> That sort of stuff. Because it's not at least one rap battle. I'm going to be very disappointed now. Okay. Oh, we're well, looking to, forward to it. We're going to have to write one in the intermission, I yeah. think, as well. Just, just perform it, see if Andrew uh, notices. Well, with all that being said, shall we watch Gone with the Wind? Yeah. yeah. Why not? Okay. For those of you listening at home, uh, pop in your DVDs, plural, because it's a long... <laughs> two DVDs. It is a two DVD one we've got. Don't and, put them um, in together, though, one after the other. I mean, like... Give it a try. See what happens. Oh, mate. Uh, just play them on top yeah. of each other. Yeah. Why not? Just like a film sandwich. And put number one in before number two. Obviously. Yeah. Because the war will be out of order. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want the war out of order. But yeah, yeah. Pop in your DVDs and uh, prepare to find out who does and doesn't give a damn as we watch Gone with the Wind. Come back. And welcome back, everybody. We have just finished watching Gone with the Wind. Happy New Year. Yeah. <laughs> Happy New Year, everyone. Da, da, da. Yes, Gone with the Wind. Uh, we got through it all. Uh, both DVDs. I didn't fall asleep. You didn't. Well done, Dawson. I kind of like laid down on the on the armrest for a bit mm. with my eyes open. They didn't, I didn't rest my eyes. Yeah. But you made it. But I made it. Excellent. Joined once again by uh, Tegan Mulvaney and Andrew Dawson. Uh, Dawson, this was your first time watching Gone with the Wind. Yeah. What'd you think? I was pleasantly surprised. Hmm. So was I. This was my first time watching as well. I'd I'd never seen the film before. I I think I'd seen basically what everyone had seen, which is that last shot of Rhett Butler. 
Dearly, my well, Frank, I don't damn a give. That yeah. one? Yeah, that, that one. one. Uh, I was just saying before that I was so sure it was from Gone with the Wind, but I couldn't quite remember. And we gone through the whole movie, and I was like, where, <laughs> where is this famous line? Is it, have I been mixed up with something, some other old movie? Mm. And then finally I saw her ask that question. He went to turn back, and I was like, oh, yes, here it is. Here it is. It's coming. Ah, oh, there it is. <laughs> and it is right at the end of the film. It's it's almost the last line. Yeah, we um, had four hours of that line. Yeah. Was it worth it? Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> well, I think it's an interesting place to start because, because it is one of the most iconic film lines and one of the most iconic closing of a film lines, essentially, because all she then does is cry on the steps and then go, well, there's no place like home, which was... Tomorrow off. is another day, yeah. is what she says. Yeah, that one. Um, yeah, same thing. <laughs> same message. And um, It's not. <laughs> no, I suppose not. <laughs> but um, you have you have this iconic line. Previously, I, I guess I'd never really given it much thought in terms of, oh, Clark Gable's character is obviously someone who isn't very nice uh, or ends up not being very nice. I, I guess seeing it in the context of then having seen what feels like a good chunk of his life because it is a four-hour film we spend with all these characters and we see Rhett popping in and out and we see him particularly in the second half of the film go through quite a lot um I, yeah that 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 line now kind of reads differently for me in my head I guess uh, now having the context of the film I'm a little bit with him I guess yeah. like he, because he's he's just gone through so so much bollocks basically um and particularly with with scarlet manipulating him and him manipulating her and the fact they've both been like scoundrels together but i kind of get him just wanting peace it's 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 I, I don't know how how you guys feel about it i guess in, in response because it's it's a very complicated story and i think the way it ends is quite remarkable yeah i it's interesting hearing you say that and after watching it again i read it as they, you know, they talk throughout the whole film about how they're the same person. You know, they, they are very similar to one another. Mm. And part of that similarity is playing games. And they don't realise until the end that playing games with each other has just screwed themselves out of a bunch of happiness that they could have had together if they were being pleasant and happy. And so by the time that that comes where there's a final, you know, moment of honesty from Scarlet, it is it's too late it's yeah. like stuff it like like i can't be can't be f- mm. anymore doing this it's too because it's dull and it's boring and it's tiring the kid is dead mm. the lovely people in their lives are dead so what's left it's just the toxic people that mm. are left i think that's kind of what melanie represents is she's and Bonnie represents they're the nice things in their life, but they're both gone within mm. five minutes of each other. Yeah. And it's like, well, there's just toxicity around them then. Because mm. Ashley's a tosser of a character. Okay. I can't stand Ashley. But, well, uh, for what reason? It's that line that he says in Clark, uh, Clark Gable, Rip Butler says it when he says, you can't be, he can't be mentally faithful, but he's too weak to be physically and technically unfaithful right it's like it's a real yeah because he actually i actually does love his wife but he loves the idea of this hot young thing wanting him yeah so he won't like cut her loose by going i don't love you man i love my wife yeah and i want to have a family and live happily with my wife he never cuts her loose yeah 
He's a jerk. He's just kind of leading her on. Yeah, he's a total jerk. This passive, squishy, Mm. poncy character. character. Squishy just fits it so well. (laughs) Yeah, squishy. It's it's uncomfortable. Like when you think, I the more I watch, I think about it that way. I guess thinking about it with you know a more modern outlook on it as well. I'm Mm. like, I'd I would prefer a. Controversial. I'd prefer the womanizing Rhett Butler over that because over Ashley because Ashley is that guy that has no self esteem and just wants to lead people on. Mm. At least you know where you stand with with Rhett. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting because my I I agree with that pretty much entirely. I the thing that I find with Ashley though is at the times where he attempted to leave, he couldn't. He was, you know, like when he tries to leave for New York and Scarlett just manipulates his wife against him. That's because he's but, but that is also, weak. He, that, a... that is also because, yeah, because he is, at least compared to the other characters in this film, he, he's a weaker character. Yeah. Um, y- yeah, I suppose... Oh, it's just a really long film. There's so... I know. <laughs> I just... Because at that moment, I feel like he's just put himself... He's, he's dug that hole for himself mm. because through... Back at Twelve Oaks, not going. I don't love you. Mm. I love, I love Melanie, and I'm going to marry Melanie. Yeah, she's my cousin. Yeah, I love her. Yeah, <laughs> creepy. Um, and so like the hole is dug by that time. Yeah, because he's always, he's always needing something from Scarlett, even if it's just a bit of an ego boost that the hot young thing in, you know, mm. in the South, in Georgia. Wants him. Mm. And because I feel like as soon as it, he feels like she is about to pull away, when, I don't know, when it's a long movie, at some point in the movie, um, <laughs> they end up kissing. Like, as soon yeah. as he feels like she's like starting to pull away, then he's yeah. like, oh, but, but, but hold on, let's just kiss a little bit, make out, so that you know that I'm still kind of into you, but then never again. Yeah, that's it. That's that, you're so right. That moment Mm. where he's, you know, breaking apart sleepers and then they're talking about the $300. That, I think, is that the moment you mean? And then he just kisses her. Yeah. Super passionately. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, it's like. You see, it's interesting because it almost feels as though that, for me at least, flew under the radar against Captain Gaslight himself in Rhett Butler. (laughs) Because the whole time I'm watching it going, on the one hand, I'm going, Rhett Butler is actually a really interesting and engaging character mm. and Clark Gable is putting in a pretty pretty fun performance and he is very watchable. But on the other hand, he's undefendable in some of the actions that he performs. Um, oh, but, yeah. I mean, particularly, this movie is 80 years old. You know, uh, times have changed. Uh, opinions about how we interact have changed. And also, this is not people in the 30s acting like people in the 30s. This is people acting essentially as far back from where the 30s is now from us. They're doing that. It would be like if we made a film, a remake of Gone with the Wind, but it was set in the 1930s in, I guess, Spain, because they had a civil war. Like that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, I suppose... It's it's just interesting looking at this relationship dynamic. Because on the one hand, it is incredibly watchable. This is a really long film, and I was thoroughly enjoying yeah. large sections of I it. I was engaged yeah. for the majority of the film. There um, were definitely a few parts where I was like, 
Okay. Yeah, they do go on a bit about the same things yeah. sometimes. Yeah. But a lot of a lot of what was really engaging was the was the relationship by which I mean the interactions between Rat and Scarlet. Mm. But it's n- it's not a healthy relationship it's at all. It's not, but it's not healthy on both their parts. Like yeah. I he does reprehensible things mm. in this film or in the book as you know as the character the character is designed like that. Mm. I don't know about the book, but in the film, I find it interesting that he apologizes for every time he does something abhorrent. Mm. He apologizes for that behavior mm. sincerely. Yeah. And she doesn't. Mm. There's that scene where after her second husband's died, after he's shot. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're sitting in the room and it's when he asks her to marry him and it's, and she's crying, and he and he says, "Look, you're you're like the you're like the criminal who's crying that he's going to prison. He re, you know he doesn't regret the crimes; he regrets going to prison. Mm. Whereas when he's doing the bad things, even when he does the the worst one, which is the rape, mm. it's a bit rapey. Yeah. And she wakes up all happy and like, oh, I just needed a good stup sort of yeah. thing, which is messed up. Yeah." He apologizes for that mm. as well. Yeah, but I, I, then again, it's it then becomes a case of what's worse. Like, is it worse having a character like Scarlet who is not remorseful and is essentially going, "I I'm making these decisions, and I, I guess I have to live with them." Well, there's survival decisions again. Yeah. That's why it's kind of interesting to watch it because there's obviously she does those shitty things to survive. Yeah. What, how she thinks she needs to survive. She probably doesn't need to do them, but yeah. which is what she finds out, you know, here and there. Mm. I don't, I don't know if he's so much remorseful about it, but I think he, it's like when he goes off to war where he's like, well, he, it's like he's playing a balancing act all the yeah. time where he is capable of these not so great things. Mm. So he has to do, so to balance them out, he either apologizes or does good things. Mm. I guess like Bell Watley. He's like Bell Watley is him in female form. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I get it. It's it, it I think it's just really fascinating. And I think I, I'm like having never seen it before, I can absolutely see why this is held up as being mm. such an important piece of cinema. Um because those character interactions are remarkable, particularly over the time span that we see. I mean, Scarlett O'Hara is is right up there for me, having just watched it, in terms of, like, compelling protagonists in films. She's incredible. It's 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 remarkable. Mm. We, I mean, You know, it's an incredible performance from, from Vivian Lee. You mm. know, we, and we see her, despite not aging, obviously, too much in the time <laughs> period, um, but we see her going from playing essentially, uh, like, teenage um girl who's like obsessed with this one particular boy in this and obviously in the in the affluent uh pre-civil war uh south um you know on a on a cotton farm and we see this transition through the war and losing large sections of her family and then being determined to never go hungry again and then building herself up and becoming this this cold hardened business lady and then all of the stuff that happens with the loss of a child it's there's a lot happening there and it's yeah. the, the the performance at least I, I found Dawson is is just 
so compelling and the character although quite reprehensible in a lot of things that they do such such a such an interesting watch yeah well because if you compare her character characterization at the beginning when she is that i want to say naive that's not quite right um just Mm. just a very young character yeah she doesn't know exactly like what's going with the war everyone's all excited about it yeah um she obviously doesn't really want it to happen um but yeah the comparison between that and then in the final scenes or just the second half when she is that like just yeah stone hard she knows exactly what she wants she's going for it it's just a huge huge difference in character Mm. and it's really really great to see yeah it's enjoyable yeah and and and, you know she's the through line of the film there's lots of great characters that come in and out uh, on the screen at the moment is, is of course Mammy uh, on the DVD. Uh, Mammy is also a consistent through line in her life, which I, I have to admit, I'm very pleased with because I was worried with everyone dropping dead that we might find Mammy no! dead in the kitchen at some point or something like that. Um, but like, and it was really interesting because obviously we will be getting on to stuff like race relations and like that, particularly in America and, and in that the time period depicted in the time period it was filmed in. But something you said when we were watching, Tegan, is that Mammy, the character of Mammy, is is essentially the the, the voice of reason in this mm. film. And I thought that was, that was really interesting. She's respected. Hmm. And I, I think that's important. And I think reflecting on what that then meant for the actor as well with her recognition. Hmm. Yeah, it's... As the film went on, because at the start I was like, oh, that's right. There's, you know, there's some real positive, you know, representation of African-Americans and slaves. You know, that's they don't shy away too much from, obviously they don't show it to be brutal because they wouldn't do that. But they, they do show bits and pieces of like, you know, children having to work and the ridiculousness of the opulence with, when all the women laid out on the beds and these poor little... African-American girls are, you know, fanning them to sleep and stuff. You go, oh, that's really not cool. But then as the film went on, I was like, oh, when Ashley starts talking about how well they treated their slaves and stuff, I was like, no. We we all had a good look at each other at that point. Yeah, I was like, oh, now this is getting a bit... And, what you know, when they go and clean out Shantytown, these little meetings, it's like... They're in the KKK. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's never said. We don't see anyone in a white hood, but yeah, what's going on? Yeah, like you, you know, it is. And it was very much that particular line from Ashley is very much um, a bum note in the concerto of this film. Like yeah. it's very much like, oh, it's filling along, going really great, and then all of a sudden, B flat, and we are not expecting it. Yeah, and I think yeah, it's it is fascinating because yeah, some people look at this film and go. But it did so much for for African Americans in films in in America, and then you have other people looking at it, justifiably going, um, "No, not really. Yeah. Didn't do a huge amount." There was also you know lots of issues around the. Well, the film. isn't it? It's only like fifteen, twenty years prior to this film that African Americans weren't allowed to be in film. Mm. So we're not like films were being made that had people in them who needed to be darker in colour and they would just blackface. They'd get mm. white actors to blackface because it was illegal to have black people in yeah. film. And, and so, and like, that's where you... And then to so to see a character, even Prissy, even as 
stupid as Prissy is as a character. Yeah. They're like, I don't know nothing about birthing no babies. Mm. Girl. At least oh, she's a character. Yeah. She's fun. Like She is, yeah. She, to give them a well-rounded character hmm. instead of just the help in the background. Yeah, and is we- pretty is pretty cool. Yeah. It's a start. I suppose, yeah, that, that's an interesting way of looking at it, is looking at it as a start. Mm. Um, and as anyone who listened to the Ben-Hur review from a few weeks ago, they continue doing blackface for quite a while yeah. in film. Well, that's it. That's Yeah, that's yeah. it. That was even when it was allowed, to, when they were allowed to cast, you know, people of different cultures and backgrounds and colours, and they didn't. Mm. It's such a long film <laughs> that... And we are... I'm just going to keep coming back to this, but, like, the Civil War really doesn't feel like it's in this film but i know it is because we've just seen it (laughs) and i thought it was a really interesting depiction of the nature of that conflict on the home front i think there's a real focus on civilization in this film i mean they, they spell it out at points where they talk about the end of their civilization the end of their world but i think it's interesting we don't often see films that show the aftermath of something like that in the way that the second half of this film does and how the 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 after echoes and ripples of what the civil war did to the south and those communities it's fascinating to see um even just in little details and little ways like when um they're in atlanta after the war in the second half and it's uh, after the war went back to new york yeah. <laughs> Um, and, oh yes, we know that Hamilton is the American War of Independence, not the Civil War. Yes, we we I got we, my wars mixed up. Yeah, we just got very excited about the possibility of rapping. I still <laughs> haven't watched Hamilton, so I don't know anything. Oh, that's okay. It's, okay. it's not this war. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's all you need to know. All right, mm. yes. Um, but but the thing I found really interesting was that we saw Atlanta being rebuilt, but by the Yankees, and yeah. we saw Yankee culture coming into it. Um, and it wasn't just the soldiers as well. It was also like we saw um, like African-American people in suits going about their day, just having a laugh. And you see Scarlett seeing these two black men doing this and just her face kind of going, oh, that's different mm. because because that's just something she wouldn't have encountered before the war. And I felt the way that they built all of that around and the way that we see um, Tara fall and become this desolate, almost like Fallout 3 type <laughs> landscape where, you know, you're waiting for rad scorpions to appear and then for it to get built up again and then living in that opulence in the second half. It's, it is a remarkable world of the film. Which... Well, it's like, for me, it's watching it, it's almost like the the war wasn't actually, like it wasn't about the war. Mm. Um, and I do like films like that, that it has these kind of really, really big moments in it, but it's all off screen. Like mm. you don't actually, you know, part of that, it's showing what happens around that in the community because that interaction between all the characters, for me, is much more enjoyable to watch than just people running around shooting each other. And yeah. like that's, you know, I can imagine that pretty clearly from the many, many war movies that there are. Yeah, mm. and I think the only person we actually see get shot is that Union soldier at the start of the second half who's oh, yeah. <laughs> deserting and, like, breaking in. And she just shoots him in the face, Yeah, um, which was great. Um, like, it was 
very shocking. Like when and now I've done a murder. Yeah, <laughs> wrote it down. It was the yeah. Well, I guess I've done murder, which is just such a nonchalant way to react to that. Um, but, but that I think that plays into it. They're like, mm. there's nothing left of. There's no morality left at that point when you're yes. trying to build everything up. Like uh, she's trying to rebuild her life. I think mm. that's. It's a wonderful way of showing like that doesn't even phase her. Mm. It's very cool. It is. And I think it sets up for the second and the second act because it is at the beginning. Mm. And it's kind of like, if she does that, what else is she going to do? Yeah. Um, particularly if she's got her mindset to it. And I think she does something even more unthinkable and that she marries Frank. Yeah. Um, and that betrays... I was so surprised by that. Yeah. Well, and betrays her sister as well, who liked Frank. Yeah. And wanted to marry him. Well, they she... were betrayed. They... He just hadn't asked... For her hand. Yeah, yet. and she was like, this is taking too long. I need the $300. Well, he'd asked Scarlett mm. for her hand. He hadn't asked the father because the father was not. Oh, of course, yeah. So that's when, yeah, when they're back at the homestead, Tara, when everyone's coming back from the war. That's mm. when he asks. For, yeah, and for then, of hand. course, she lies. Yeah. And you've got brilliant, like, bitch please face from mm-hmm. uh, Mammy in the back of the carriage. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just don't fit. put my, my hand in your pocket? Mm. I forgot my muff. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was, again, it was interesting seeing that, um, and how that, how that, basically just how Scarlet was willing to do anything in order to survive. But I think it's interesting that the film doesn't necessarily glorify that. Like, she does succeed. She does, she becomes a woman of wealth, and if not adoration, at the very least, she has prestige through having wealth. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but we see that that ultimately is nothing mm. um, in the in the grand scheme of the film. Well, I do also like that she admits to it when she goes to marry Butler. Um, he asks her straight up, are you marrying me for my wealth? And she's like, oh, yeah, like partly. Yeah. She doesn't even, mm. like, shy around at that time. She's like, yeah, um, it's money. Partly. Mm. Partly. <laughs> well, yeah, because money equates to survival. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's it's just so fascinating how... Again, the first half of this film really sets her up with this idea that surviving is the only important thing and never being hungry again. And she makes that vow on that hilltop, which is a would have been a great end to the film, or at least a film if you did part it as two films. Two, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but then I really like the fact that that decision, though it works out, means that her life plays out in a way that she didn't expect. She even says that when she's in the mill with um, Ashley. You know, she's saying, I never expected life to to end up going this way and reflect she says it a few times even when her first husband dies and she's like i don't i don't think i'd be a widow this young like she Mm. wants to go party and she wants to dance and she wants to have fun Mm. but she can't because she's a widow Mm. because she's probably like 18 and married and like it's when you think about that it's because how young she must have been at that first bit as well she got she went from Stupid young love to complete trauma and tragedy. Mm. You can kind of understand, you know, when people get obsessions with like their first love or, or something like that, you kind of, mm. it, it kind of makes that make more sense. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, the, we all found it quite funny or like we, we responded quite strongly to her going right at the end of the film. And Ashley is like, I don't love you. She's like, I guess you don't love me. But it's the first time right. he'd said it, though. True, true. There is that, but it's I literally the first time he'd said it. It is the first time he said it, but I think it's also 
the scales falling away from her eyes that the one thing that we knew about her before the war broke out was that she loved Ashley or the, or the very least that she wanted to be betrothed to him and that's the thing that she holds on to this mm. entire way through the film and that only gets dissuaded in that second to last scene and for me at least I would read that as her being like if I'm with Ashley everything's okay because when I wanted to be with Ashley you know we had uh, Tara was a great farmstead my parents were alive and not messed up you know the south was still a thing um you know all this kind of business and she hadn't had to endure those hardships um yeah I just thought it was kind of an interesting hook to give her even though it's you know incorrect uh, ultimately and is proven to be a very unhealthy way for her to have lived her life. Mm. Well, that's why I'm genuinely interested to, like, know what would happen after this film because she's lost so many people in her life. She has, like, lost her love or connection with Ashley. She's lost um, Butler because, frankly, he just doesn't give a damn. <laughs> um, and now she's going back home. She lost her child. She, she lost her child. She had two children, she, technically. Yeah, mm. She was, fell down the stairs. Mm. You, you laugh because it was so shocking. <laughs> like, just the way it happened. Just a great stunt. Yeah. Um, but it was just like, oh, yeah, you can have an accident. Literally has an accident at the <laughs> suggestion stairs. of it. Um, yeah, but she, you're right. She has lost everything except for the land from which she came. And there was also... I was going to bring it up before. At the very end, I'm still unsure about exactly how she feels because she was crying, saying, you know, don't leave me, I love you, all of this. And then everything just kind of washes away and she doesn't look sad anymore and she just says that I'm going to go home. And then I'm like, well, were you just putting all of that emotion on so that he didn't leave? Or did you actually feel that and you've had like a new epiphany? Or, mm. you know what I mean? Yeah, you see, because mm. I read that last scene, I think how you read it, Tegan, which is where she is saying that she's sorry and she is being truthful, but it's too late. Um, as, as Carol King would say, you know, it, 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 it's it, too, too late, late baby, baby, now it's too late. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, it's... It's too late to apologize. That's what I was thinking of. <laughs> Well, sorry, millennials. I'm not keeping up with your, with okay, your hit music of the, of the day. He's uh, wearing a boomer shirt. Like this that's... is this is a, an authentic Australian Hawaiian shirt. All right, so a Stwian, a Stwian, shirt, Stwian shirt. Anyway, um, enough about my terrible fashion choices. It's not terrible. It is Hawaiian shirts. Nice. Yeah, you're out, you're outnumbered here. Mm. All right. <laughs> Regardless of what I'm wearing. Um, I think it is interesting that... Sorry, I can't hear you over your shirt. Yeah, the the apology comes too late. And um, yeah, I just, I, I, I believed her at the end of the film. Mm. And I also think that, you know, she's hearing the ghostly voice of her father and all these other people that she's lived, that have lived, you know, she's been part of her life. Um, saying, you know, Tara is the place. It's the place you draw your strength from. You're a sorceress or whatever it is where it's like you're connected to that land. He definitely said that as well. You're a sorceress. It, well, it felt like that. It really <laughs> felt like... It, I mean, at one point, Rhett says, you draw your power from that place. And it just got me thinking that she's like a Skeksis and yeah. Tara is the dark crystal. Um, <laughs> you know, she's just she's just going to go back and go... Mm, she's not just manipulating people. She's actually using magic to yeah. get yes. people to do what she wants. Mm. That's how she turned that curtain into that quite amazing dress. Like this, yeah, like yeah, that. that was a good-looking dress. Yeah, I mean, it, it did. I mean, okay, it was kind of gaudy, but like considering it was drapes, it it was a really incredible uh, renovation. But I like going back to being a bit serious about this film. Okay, 
Sorry. Serious, Although serious, the drapes were fun. Mm. I want to talk about the drapes. But um, <laughs> it's kind of cool that a love story is sort of saying that love isn't the only thing you need at the end of the day. Like, mm. do you, I kind of get that from that thing that she's like, all right, well, that's not working. We'll think about that tomorrow. Jeez, I'm upset by that. And then her brain goes back to how do I make myself better? And that's mm. by going home. I Like, because most love stories would perhaps have her just chasing after him and yeah. getting them, you know, together. and Have a boombox over her shoulder. Sort of, yes, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, say anything sort of, sort of style. But it's like this or she'd be waiting and pining for him and she's like, no, that's not what I do. Mm. I'm going to go home and I'm going to set myself up there and then we'll see what happens after that. Like, I think that's pretty modern mm. and pretty cool that... It's not necessary. It's a, you know, it's meant to be a love story. It's meant to be one of the greatest love stories of all time. It's not really though, because it's kind of saying, well, love isn't the most important thing. Yeah, and I also think it's interesting that this is a film that doesn't use the word love very often. Yeah, it means it when it uses it. Yeah, like even at that point where Rhett is like, "What should I do? Get down on one knee?" and he's expressing his feelings, and he goes, "Could it possibly even be love?" Like, mm. but he's saying it in kind of like a mocking way, and yeah, it it does seem entirely that case where it's it is arguing this point where it's like i mean i think it is arguing that survival is incredibly important mm. um and also when he says i don't give a damn is what well, he's he's just got what he wanted he said all he's ever wanted from her is for her to look at him and say i love you and mean it hmm. he gets it i missed that completely damn it's when when <laughs> when they're at the when he's packing clothes and she's going. Oh I, no no! I, like I missed that point. Oh yeah yeah and, and well, then he just blew my mind. Yeah and then so <laughs> when he says i don't give a damn he's it's so, it's such a slap in the face because it's like, oh shit, you got what you wanted, hmm. but you didn't want it anymore, or it's too late. It's like it literally is too late. He's like, no, nah. hmm. no, nah, I've had to sit through all of this. I've behaved badly. You've behaved badly. This has been too long, hmm. and I need to get my head together and go back to where I started. Go back to the Moss Eisley cantina yeah yeah and be han solo yeah yeah be a scoundrel um, yeah i'm also a big fan of movies that don't just have a happy ending like everyone yes. gets together and you know chase after the guy or the girl and then make out and everyone's mm. happier after. Mm. Like, i don't I'm- think anyone was happy at the end of this film though <laughs> like Rhett and scarlet have obviously both lost their child and their their future with each other um mel's dead all hope dies with melanie it just occurred yeah. to me this watching i'm like well, she's the only one who's good. Yeah. She's literally the only one who's... Yeah, oh, mate, and Belle Watley. But Belle, who's the... Who's the... Brothel tart lady. with a heart. Yeah. <laughs> like, but she can only do so much because of what the, the world thinks of her. And she has that little... She's welling she up loves, with tears. She loves Rhett Butler. Yeah, and that's... She's in love with him and she can't have him. Yeah. And he was and just like, oh, I'm just going to pinch your cheeks and walk away. And she was like, okay. Yeah. And like, you know, you, you know, Mammy's not going to be happy because she's got to follow around bloody Scarlet on whatever the next thing is. She's got to go back to Tara and she's devastated by the loss of Bonnie. Um, and she's going to be like, I told you this wasn't going to work. Yeah, exactly. That's... Like, and obviously, you know, Ashley's not happy. Maybe, you know, he deserves to not be happy. But, but still, like, he's... He's not happy. The, the surviving kid isn't happy. No one's happy. This yeah. is... Yeah. I, I think that really works, though. It absolutely really works, particularly for the message of the 
of the film that they're doing. And also, it turns out that um, they may have been clan members, some of them, and they were hiding it from the police. That's it. And that just keeps coming back to me, where I'm like, ah, that's a really fun scene. And then you remember that they were probably, yeah, they were probably hiding clan Political meeting. Yeah. With their pillowcases. Yeah. Yeah, it was weird how he left with that pillowcase and a pair of scissors. (laughs) I was like, what what are you doing there, old uh, old Frankie boy? Um, Yeah, but... Despite the fact that it is obviously um, a really quite somber and sad ending, I really like this film. Yeah, mm. I, I was not expecting um, to be as engaged, and it's beautifully shot. It yeah. looks beautiful. I was going to say a lot about that. I haven't watched an older film in quite some time, mm. so I'm very used to new styles of filming and cinematography. But watching this and thinking of the technology difference between then and now like it's shot really well like so many of the oh, just everything even some of the like that big tracking shot where they go yes. uh where out- all the wounded are they yeah. yeah it's fantastic and, and i was i'm trying to think of like how would they have done that then like that's now we use like giant cranes it's a and, crane like, shot but it's a it, they you, Maneuvered it by hand. I think there was a. Didn't they wind them? I think they yeah, had... yeah. There they were there were cranes in place, but they obviously weren't as. Um, not saying it's easy to do a crane shot these days, but we have systems in place which make it easier to perform the task. Well, they do that. With a, they do it with a drone probably now if they were going to. Do yeah, that. yeah. But they'd true. CGI in all of those people, so that was they were all people. Or, or like dummies. Very well placed mannequins. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, in a shot like that works because well, some on of them an older screen yeah. as well. Uh, yeah. In less high quality. Yeah, but even even then, we could only really see one or two dummies. Yeah, and there's still like, like thousands of extras on that scene. Yeah, there's lots of movement incredible. happening. It is an incredible shot, but it's also like the use of colour. I think mm-hmm. is great. I always think of the Civil War in the manner of the photographs which are taken, which are obviously in sepia tones. Yeah. Um, and then you see people when they do uh, like special colorized versions of those photographs, and you're like, oh, this was a beautiful, vibrant countryside that they were in and fighting mm. in. And then seeing all these guys in their Confederate uniforms, like the where the gray and the yellow uh, yeah. interact. It, it and is. The blues and the. Yeah, the like yeah. deep blues. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, when you're in the the opulence of of the housing in the after the Civil War, when everything's on the up with the mill, it, this is a beautiful looking film. And the other film from 1939 we reviewed this year, The Wizard of Oz, obviously gets a very big uh, commendation on its visuals because it has that transition from the opening 20 minutes being in sepia tones mm. to color to represent Oz being magical and all that kind of thing. But I think this is a prettier film than The Wizard of Oz. And The Wizard of Oz is is still great to look at, and it is a beautiful film. But I think the way that this is shot and the way things are framed and the way that we see Atlanta, like when Atlanta's burning down and you've got all that, that fire happening and, and the way the way it's all shot, it's stunning. It's almost filmic as well. I mean, we were joking about some of the colours. Yeah, know, the, the fallout. The settings. But that's, be- <laughs> I mean, they, they're clearly using a cyclorama and just, you know, like hitting them with lights like reds and oranges mm. but still pretty cool yeah it's still very pretty kind of adds to the style of it as Absolutely. well yeah yeah, yeah. i love the the fact where they were painted you know whether everything's painted in it's so it's usually in the it's either to show the opulence or the desolation mm. so it's very cool to have it 
so epically done. Mm. Would you guys like some trivia about yeah. Gone with the Wind? Because uh, there's a lot of it. Uh, <laughs> I've had to I've had to cull quite a bit from IMDb, uh, but here we go. Gone with the Wind. The initial director of this film, for it was not Victor Fleming the whole way through, uh, the original director, George Cukor, was fired over his problems with the screenplay and for consistent alterations to it, which he received almost daily from the producer, David O. Selznick. Selznick. Now, it's not O. Selznick as in an Irish name, it's O. Dot Selznick. Is that why there's two films? Because one director did... One, I mean, two halves. One directed one half, one directed the other half. It's not, but that, that wouldn't be a bad show. Um, yeah. Um, when Victor Fleming came on board in February 1939... Like a grindhouse? Like... <laughs> <laughs> I, now, Quentin Tarantino's got the Grind with the wind. Yeah, grind with the wind. Yes. Quentin Tarantino directing one half of this film. Yeah. <laughs> Probably the Civil Jeez. War half. Yeah. Would have been very interesting. Man, you like, shot that Union soldier in the face. <laughs> It was a speed bump. We're on the stairs. <laughs> and then a Leonardo DiCaprio lookalike runs yeah. on. Yeah. It's, except instead of swearing, they'd all be saying, Great balls of fire! <laughs> and fiddly D! <laughs> oh, dear. Um, when Victor Fleming came on board in 1939, he also rejected the script and convinced Selznick that it had to be rewritten. Production was shut down for 17 days whilst the rewriting was happening. Um, this was being done by a man named Ben Hecht. Supposedly, Hecht was not allowed time to read the original novel by Margaret Mitchell. Um, instead, Selznick and Fleming would play out parts from the book to which Hecht would write the dialogue. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was a real, real issue. Um, and it was it was not a fun thing. And the production did almost shut down. But in the end, you got a pretty workable story out of essentially a film producing a director going, and then, and then Clark Gable will do this. Woo! Like that kind of thing. How do you pitch that as an idea of a way to do it i think it's like... <laughs> it was more I, I, I don't think any of them were going this is the ideal way we want to make this film i think it was more we've started so we'll finish oh, but i want that to be their ideal way of doing it <laughs> um so hattie mcdaniel obviously played uh, mammy and won the academy award in doing so becoming the first uh, black person to win um an academy award of, of any kind mm. um she was not able to attend the premiere originally because uh, it was taking place in Atlanta and it was still racially segregated there. Uh, so Clark Gable um, was being outraged, threatened to boycott the premiere unless she could attend. Uh, he later relented when she convinced him to go. Um, but yeah, she wasn't allowed to attend the premiere. And of course, um, there's all sorts of stories around the Academy Awards about the fact that you know, she attended but wasn't allowed to go in through the front door. She had to go in through the service door. Like, all this kind of stuff that's around it. Which I think is is partly why this film is such a complicated relationship with mm. with different racial groups. Isn't that devastating as well that she had to tell Clark Gable, no, go. Mm. It is the way it is. Like, yeah. I, like, I find that so, so sad. Yeah. And uh, but I think it's also important to remember and acknowledge that because mm. I think because it's getting to the point where these things are no longer in living memory. Mm. Um, you know, it, it it is important to remember that just because it's not within living memory for most people doesn't mean it didn't happen. And that it didn't just happen. 
yeah. you know, like it's what, only eighty years ago. Yeah, like, it's really not. That's that, actually not that long. Yeah, like ago. I know most of the people in this film are dead, but like the babies might still be like some little old people knocking around somewhere. <laughs> you know, that those those little babies might still be knocking around. You know, this is. It's not as though it's back in the Stone Age. No, like the, these are important things to to remember and to acknowledge. Well, in Australia, we were still doing this stuff until the sixties. So yeah, yeah, exactly. It, like even in Australia, it's even. It's only 50 years ago. Yeah. You go, yeah, it's a mess. Mm. Horrible. When Gary Cooper turned down the role of Rhett Butler, he was passionately against it. Uh, he was quoted as saying, Gone with the Wind is going to be the biggest flop in Hollywood history. And I'm just glad it will be Clark Gable who's falling on his face and not <laughs> Gary Cooper. End quote. Well, that was incorrect. <laughs> they had to... Clark Gable was owned by a different... Um, production company though wasn't he? Was, he? Yeah. was he with Warner? Uh, I forget. Brothers? I forget who he was with, but they, they yeah they had to do some uh, some special deals. Yeah, because the you were owned by um, production companies back then, so you could only make films for your company. And for him to do this, they had to didn't they have to sell them Shirley Temp something like they did some weird like swap around and then the money was crazy and just to get him into the film. Jeez. I mean, these, yeah. so, these sorts of deals were happening um, with different film stars. Mm. But for Clark Gable, um, the arrangements were um, were very particular. Um, Brush your teeth. Clark, well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> we, we will get on to Clark Gable's stinky breath in a sec. Um, Clark Gable was in, induced into accepting the role um, through arrangements to divorce his then wife uh, and so that he could marry Carol Lombard. That's right. And that was part of the deal that got him onto this film. So, like, his real-life divorce was a factor in him being able to agree a deal. That would have been messy. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Just, just yeah, just messy. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's fascinating looking at those those sort of golden age of hollywood um era deals and mm. and and things swapping out and things like that just to get these things over the line um but yeah yeah no they had to they had to try quite hard to get him um but yeah for gary cooper not so super duper it <laughs> didn't really work there um margaret mitchell the author of the book gone with the wind uh, personally approved of vivian lee's interpretation of scarlet so it's always good yeah she, she wasn't the first <clears throat> choice was she no so there was a there was a big old kind of like nationwide hunt to get um the the actress that would play scarlett o'hara and there were all these things like there were they were asking people in magazines like who would you pick and Mm. one of the urban legends is that they got hundreds of people who nominated in in this particular magazine and they got one vote for uh, vivian Vivian who ended up doing it and it was probably her herself going i'd be great like that kind of thing Um, because betty davis mm. was in the running but she did jezebel which is kind of similar in in style like set in the south and so they were they didn't want to make the same film yeah but they ended up going with with vivian lee and um she was rewarded with having to kiss clark gable which uh she hated because he had bad breath uh, rumored to be caused by his false teeth, 
which were a result of excessive smoking. According to Frank Buckingham, a technician who observed the film being made, Gable would sometimes eat garlic before his kissing scenes as well. <laughs> Why? Why would you do that? Well, you know... He's a smart-ass. Yeah, he's playing Rhett Butler. He might not be doing that much acting. <laughs> he, he might be someone that's just like, hey, I'm going to play a trick on you, see? Um, <laughs> I mean, that said, one of the other trivia bits was um, in the scene where he gives um, Mammy the drink. In one, right, of, the sh- in yeah. one of the shots, they replace the, the non-alcoholic liquid with actual alcohol, and she just downs it and carries on doing the scene. So, <laughs> you know, they, they were having a little bit of fun on the set here and there. But yes, uh, reportedly he did not have great breath and i think that was actually quite noticeable you, in, i swear she's in those shots. there's just scenes where she's got her mouth closed so tightly mm. and she's she just barely breathing <laughs> out of her nose you mm. can and it's it looks like a character choice but when you know that trivia like she's just not breathing in mm. she's just trying to do that you know like when someone does a stinky poo in the toilet mm. breath where you go <gasps> And you kind of hold it. Mm. Anyone else? No. Yep. Breathe, breathe as lightly as you yeah, can. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to take. Mm. You don't want to get that stuff in your lungs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's um, just Clark Gable sewer mouth. That's that's what she's got. <laughs> yeah. Well, I bet he did. I bet it was on the garlic day as well. Maybe just an extra extra maybe, stench. Maybe it was a better smell. Yeah. Than maybe the he's actual... like, quick. What's the smelliest thing we've got that needs to cover up my awful breath? Yeah, I'd rather garlic than halitosis. Well, I was thinking he would have done it as like a screw you. Someone said his breath was smelly, and he was like, "Right, you know what? Oh, Let's man. go find some garlic." Cool. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you. He could have just breath. cleaned his false teeth. Maybe. I mean, mm. yeah. Yeah, like brush your teeth, man. <laughs> yeah, Clark Gable. Come on, Clark Gable. If you're listening, chew some gum. Mm. Um, if box office receipts were adjusted for inflation. Uh, this film would have been the top grossing film of all time. Uh, Star Wars, uh, the first one, uh, A New Hope, would only be second. According to the Guinness World Records homepage, uh, thank you, Internet, uh, the total gross in 2012 figures for Gone with the Wind would be $4 billion. Wow. $4.4 billion. Um, I can I, give you the exact digit if you I want. I thought the total gross was um, Clark Gable's breath. Yeah, it was Clark Gable's <laughs> breath. <laughs> Yeah, but it was a grand total of $4,401,358,554.94. Well, that $0.94 cents makes the difference That topped to it. Yeah, Star Wars was $0.93. Cents. Yeah. 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 That's George a Lucas, lot. Yeah. George Lucas is there going, I need more merchandise. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Jar Jar Binks toys. Ooh. Sell. <laughs> Uh, very few of the principal cast members liked the characters that they were playing. Um, as we said before, Clark Gable had to be induced partly through like, hey, we'll throw in a free divorce for you. <laughs> um, Rand Brooks, who played Scarlett's first husband, Charles Hamilton, was actually a rough outdoorsman who objected playing such a wimpy character. He dies of measles. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that said, he did a really good job of acting because yeah. he was a total ponce. It was yeah. great. Um, and... Butterfly McQueen disliked her negative stereotype of her character. Is that Prissy? But- oh, right. It's a great name. Butterfly yeah, McQueen. Very cool. Yes, Butterfly McQueen plays Prissy. And yeah, I, c- I can kind of agree with that. Yeah, I, g- I know. I get mm. it. I just... But she made it so... I don't know. Yeah, she made the character so rounded. I don't, maybe that's in retaliation to it being but- so... St- but it is a very stereotypical... It is very stereotypical. Yeah. Kind I just of love it when she's singing and she, she's 
putting in a beautiful performance. It is, yeah. But you can but understand. It's problematic. And also, yeah. Butterfly McQueen is an incredible name. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Good 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 on your butts. She probably wouldn't have been called butts as a nickname. <laughs> Just realized. <laughs> Sorry, uh, Miss McQueen. Um Leslie Howard, uh, who played Ashley Wilkes, uh, felt he was too old for the role and complained that his costumes made him look like a fairy dorm into a hotel. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it was helped by his hair having those little curls in the side. Again, in the... He came back after war, after being imprisoned, and his hair was still... His clothes were all tattered. He was not looking good. But his hair still had this little little wave curl on the side, still Mm. pushed back. I was like, you obviously had time to do that in the morning. He's clearly a Dapper Dan man. Yes, yeah, definitely. Very important. Um, so we, we've been talking about uh, race stuff that makes us unhappy. Let's go for uh, gender inequality and pay with this next bit. Oh, oh, yeah. So Vivian Lee worked for 125 days and received $25,000 to appear in this film, which, you know, is not chump change back in the 30s. It's mm-hmm. pretty good. Clark Gable worked for 71 days, which is obviously less than 125, and received $120,000. Now, partly that is because in that old system, Clark Gable was the big star. Vivian Lee was like, this was her breakout role type thing. But even so, the discrepancy is a bit much. How much did you say she made again? 25. 25,000. So she made a fifth of what Clark Gable did. Yeah, not anywhere near. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad times have changed. Yeah. Aren't we all happy in this modern utopia? 80 years. (laughs) Reportedly, one of the reasons stated by David Selznick as to why he fired George Cukor as director was that Cukor, a homosexual, would be unable to properly direct the love scenes between Rat and Scarlet. We're moving on to a different thing to be annoyed about now. Um, And so he replaced him with the... uh, Victor Fleming, who had a reputation for being a macho director. Uh, although he was dismissed from the production, Cukor continued to privately coach both Vivian Lee and Olivia de Havilland at their request on weekends, unbeknownst to either Selznick or Fleming. That's interesting. Mm. I mean, I, I think it's interesting that, yeah, they went, oh, a, a gay man can't possibly be able to do a, a heterosexual relationship that doesn't make sense oh, you don't know what it's like yeah um but then obviously that's not the case that's not how it worked out at all, at all. so and- it was the two of them that wanted him to come back and keep coaching them yeah yeah so so uh, olivia de Havilland, who played melanie um mm. and and uh, i was about to say scarlett o'hara <laughs> vivian lee they were both sneaking off uh without telling the, the others and getting like acting lessons or coaching lessons from the original director. The first scene to be shot was the burning of the Atlanta Depot, filmed on the 10th of December 1938. If there was a major mistake during the filming, the entire film could have been scrapped, because they only had one shot at getting it right. They burned many old sets that needed to be cleared from the studio backlot, including ones from the Garden of Alar of 1936, and the Great Wall set from King Kong. Uh, the fire cost over $25,000 and yield- yielded 113 minutes of footage. It was so intense that Culver City residents jammed the phone lines thinking MGM was actually burning down. Jeez. <laughs> and it looks amazing. It does. Like, that's that's a big old proper fire they got going there. And Then when you start to realise they're, bur- <laughs> they're burning, like, icon iconic stuff, you're like, Just Ooh. old set pieces. <laughs> Uh, beforehand, we were just talking about the fact that, obviously, um, 80 years is not a terribly long time. 
Um, According to newsreels, there were a handful of Confederate Civil War veterans who, although quite old, attended the premiere of this film in Atlanta. So people who actually fought in the Civil War, supposedly, were at the premiere in 1939. Does it say what they thought of it? Um, No, it doesn't. Um, But I'm... I'm, It's fairly neutral. Yeah. With regards to... I mean, I, I certainly, I think, a modern version of this film... If there was like someone was making a remake of Gone with the Wind, I think it would be a lot harsher on the whole uh, having slaves thing. I don't think there'd yeah. be any of that justification from Ashley in the second half, for example. It's like, but we treat them. Or more. if it was, it would be in irony as yeah. opposed to earnestness. Or he'd just get shut down, like. Yeah. Or they'd yeah. be the bad character. Do you think Gone with the Wind would work if it was remade? I think so. I think it could be. It'd have to be done in a the correct way. Be a fun but, series, like it, like it would be, like things that they talk about, you know, like when Bonnie dies mm. and they and Mammy's talking about all that stuff that happens. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be so cool to see all that drama, and to like give all of these characters a, a more meaty, give all these actors more meatiness to their roles, like. Mm. Like, they do what they can with the roles, but imagine how far you could go. I love protagonists that are messed up. They're just yucky. Mm. And they're all the protagonists in this are yuck. Like, yeah. there's so much dirt to them, which would be so fun as an actor to kind of, you know, peel through and portray and mm. just to add a bit more dimension to it. Yeah. That'd I think, be awesome. I think a series would work, maybe yeah. on Netflix or Amazon Prime. Yeah, if you're listening. Uh, you know. hey, I think yeah. it would work better like that than as a movie, actually, because this is already quite long, and I yeah. feel like everyone's attention span, especially with the amount of series that are out, has just shrunk. Mm. Yeah, I'll watch. Um, I'll play Bell Watley. If oh, you'd be great as Bell Watley. Just I want to be Bell Watley. <laughs> just doing a little sad cry. Yeah. Uh, as much as I would probably love to play one of the sexier characters, I think I would have to play the ever so slightly Irish Mr. O'Hara. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the only character I could play. <laughs> Katie Scarlet. Oh, Scarlet, come over here, won't you know? I'm, I think I went past Ireland once. That's where this <laughs> accent comes from. Oidy doy doy. I'd be one of those ginger twins. Exactly I was thinking what I was going to yeah. say. Because <laughs> oh, no, I could be both of them. Yeah, you'd be both yeah. of them. Yeah, you'd be like the Winklevoss twins. Or yeah, my, my brother to play the other one. We're, we're similar enough. That's yeah, true. perfect. Um, <laughs> Olivia de Havilland always meticulously researched her roles as she had not had a baby um, when they were making the film she visited a maternity hospital to study how various women coped with the stresses of childbirth uh, for when she was doing the scene where she had a baby Off- they showed a lot of that scene That's, yeah. it was a big part of the movie mm. Yeah, <laughs> Look, three seconds she, of it she did the research um, <laughs> and I just want to know Hi, I'm Olivia de Havilland. I'm just going to watch you give birth. We've never met. <laughs> like, I don't know if I would be comfortable with that were I having a baby. Um, Tegan, you have had a baby. I have. If if a, a Hollywood actress turned up, let's say... Um, Mar- I don't know why I always go to Marissa Tomei as my first actor choice, but let's say Marissa Tomei turns up when you're having a baby and says, Hi, Marissa Tomei here, big Hollywood star. I'm going to watch you have a baby for the remake of gone with the wind is that cool i'd say how much are you getting let's sign a contract you can watch all you like but it's gonna cost you that's fair yes all right i need to you're putting my baby through college (laughs) marissa tomei (laughs) 
Hattie McDaniel was criticised by some African Americans for playing uh, in a supposedly racist film. Uh, I mean, yeah, supposedly. Eh, I don't think there's much supposed about it in parts. Um, but she responded by saying she would rather make $700 a week playing a maid than $7 being one. I, I think that's fair. I, mm. I, I don't know. It's a really tricky thing yeah. to ask of someone if you... She's... She's in a between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. It's like, what do you? you Ultimately, know? it has to be something there. You you make that choice, mm. um, and you know, morals are are all well and good, but at the same time, this role secured her legacy. I don't think we'd That's necessarily it. be talking about her as an actress. I think um, as actors, we all find a point mm. where we have to question our morals mm. for a role. I don't mean like we have to you know, sleep with a director or something. Or maybe some people feel like they do, you know, that maybe, you know, I, but I, there's always a point where you go, I don't want to do children's theater anymore. And then you don't have a job for three months. And then someone says, here's a job, which is in children's theater. And you're, it's, it's terrible, but you go well i need to feed my kid and yeah. and you know and pay my rent so i i guess i'm going back into children's theater yeah and like yeah you're right it is something that it is a balancing act that and you take that, that to another happens. level where i like i'm i can't speak about what it's like to do that when you've got when you're dealing with racism and you're dealing mm. with that inequality there like that horrific oppression but that's where you know you you have to look at where your morals are with that stuff and go yeah and she's more than within her rights to go i want to live and i want to live happily and comfortably and i don't want to live in that mm. world but i'm ha- i can pretend that world yeah because she's probably got family and she's got people you know and she's got people that she needs to support yeah and then you know beyond that she becomes the first african american to win that's it. an and academy award that's it. and then there's a legacy that's created by that albeit it wasn't Followed by the powers that be. Yeah, because we had to wait till Denzel and Hallie to. Did did Sydney Poitier not win one? Oh, I can't remember. No, he didn't. He didn't. Um, I don't know if that unless there was a supporting actor role that he won it for. Yeah, I mean it was it was a a long time. But the yeah it was yeah. Uh, Denzel and Hallie Berry were the first two to win best actor and actress. Mm. And that was in what two thousand? Yeah, that was that was definitely within living memory. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. Again, it 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 is an interesting moral quandary, but she obviously made a decision, um, mm. and I think benefited from it. Um, That's, I've got a friend who's on Home and Away, mm. and he's a brilliant actor. He's incredible. And I was talking about this with my mum the other day. This is again. This is probably diminishing the other like cultural issues that it were going on here. I just mean about choices and morals and Yeah. He's a brilliant actor and he's playing not a very challenging role. It's home and away. Mm. It's not challenging. And he is <laughs> so happy though because I'm not, I can only kind of speculate, but he went from having no job and no money for so long where it was affecting his mental health to mm. having this role and now he gets to have a home he gets to feed his family Mm. he gets to 
live his hobbies mm. and he has a job for God knows how long because and the character is popular. Yeah, and also some people like Home and Away. And also, yes. Yeah, and, and, then, like, and, he, and he has to, I mean, there's all the bits and pieces that go along with it, like the like telethon and the mm. meet and greets and, you know, the craziness with that. But people value his work. That's it. And he's an actor and he's got a steady job. And I go, I would do that. Yeah. I would totally do that. I'd watch you on Home and Away at least once. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. At I'll least play, once. I'll yeah. murder someone. I don't, you know, mm. I'll come on for a bit. Right? But, it, like, I think that's lovely. Mm, I think I'm is. at a point now where I'm like, that's lovely. We all go through our, I will only do what's, what gives me credibility. But it's like, yeah, but I do want to eat. Still got to pay the bills. Yeah. That's I want to go to a restaurant, like, once a month or so. I want to I be a bit fancy every now and then. Vivian Lee was having an affair with Laurence Olivier at the time this film was made. Uh, however, the two were separated because Olivier was working in New York on his uh, stage commitments. Lee was so determined to reunite with him that she was willing to work late at night in order to finish the shoot more quickly. Which is kind of nice. I got married after that. Of course, yes. Mm, they were married. Mm. Did she have a yucky death, I think? She had a... Yeah. Everyone had a yucky death in this film. But that is kind of nice, though. I want to finish early. Mm. Like, let's, yeah. let's smash this out. I want to go yeah. see my... See the guy I'm having an affair with. I, guess. I mean, apart from the affair... Yeah, forgot about the affair, affair part. Mm. She died of TB, that's right. Oh, probably from yeah. Clark Gable's mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Hallie T. Oh, dear. Um, why do I remember that? That's one thing that I... <laughs> I don't know why I remember that. I've always known that Vivian Lee died of TB. Probably because it rhymes. <laughs> it rhymes. Yeah. Vivian, Vivian Lee died, died of, of TB. <laughs> the Entracte music was played entirely on a Nova chord, the first use of an electronic synthesizer in a Hollywood film. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. 39 synthesizers. Awesome. I, that's just, I just think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, Michael DeGrasse, who was on a few weeks ago... Mm-hmm. Has just bought his 19th synthesizer. Really? 19th? Yeah. We've started a new synth band. Okay. Does it have a... doesn't have a name. No it's name? Just, it's just a six-piece synth band. Which is really hard band. to say. Six-piece synth band. Six-piece yeah, right. synth band. Yeah. But it's... We, on, we only play a couple of synths, but we bring them all onto the stage. So you have six, but you don't use them all. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's great. Mm. Mickey Coon, who played Vivian Lee's nephew, Bo Wilkes, also played the young sailor who helps her out onto the streetcar in a streetcar named Desire. Aww. So obviously there's a 12-year time gap between those films. Uh, Coon mentioned it to someone on set that he'd acted with Lee as a child. Word got back to her and she called him into her dressing room for a half-hour chat. In an interview in the 70s, Coon said that Lee was extremely kind to him and one, one of the loveliest ladies he'd ever met. Oh, that's Aww. really lovely. Yeah. The film had its first preview on the 9th of September 1939 at the Fox Theatre in Riverside, California. In attendance were David O. Selznick, his wife, Irene Mayer Selznick, investor, John Hay Whitney, and editor, Halsey Kern. Kern called for the manager... Halsey Kern or Halsey Kern? Halsey Kern! By yours today! (laughs) That was Halsey Kern, unfortunately. Uh, Kern called for the manager and explained that the theatre had been chosen for the first public screening of the film, although the identity of the film was to remain undisclosed to the audience until it began. People were permitted to leave only if they didn't want to hang around for a film that they didn't know the name of. But after they'd gone to the theatre, they were basically not allowed back in. So they basically said, look, we're going to show you a film but you don't know what it is, and you have to stay in here, basically. 
Um, his one request, uh, the guy running the theatre, was to call his wife so that she could come along, um, although he still wasn't allowed to tell her what it was. So they, they did it. They did this secret screening. When the film began, the audience started yelling with excitement. They had been reading about this film for nearly two years, so were naturally thrilled to see it for themselves and be the first ones to do it. I just think that's really cool. That's very cool. Mm. It'd be really exciting to be someone who was part of the film mm. and to hear just everyone going wild. You'd be like, yes, we've done good, guys. Until they realise it's four hours long. That's <laughs> the only And then it gets the intermission. They're like, oh, wait, can we leave? leave? What's You're locked uh... in to listen to this music for three minutes. All seven of Hollywood's then-existing Technicolor cameras were used to film the burning of the Atlanta Depot. Uh, flames 500 feet high leaped from a set covered that covered 40 acres. Ten pieces of fire equipment from the L.A. Fire Department, uh, 50 studio firemen and 200 studio helpers stood by throughout the filming of the sequence in case the fire got more out of hand. Jeez. Uh, more out of hand than 500 feet tall. Yeah. That was a controlled <laughs> giant burn. Uh, three 5,000-gallon water tanks were used to quench the flames after the shoot. That would have been huge. Yeah. 40 can... acres. Yeah, yeah. They just... That's in. That's nuts. I can see why people actually thought it was on, like, the... Hmm. Yeah, that's an entire fire. farm. Like, yeah. that's huge. Yeah. That's, that's how big the set was. Wow. Uh, contrary to popular belief, this is not the first film to use the word damn. Uh, the expletive was used in numerous silent intertitles and also in some talkies, including Cavalcade in 1933 and Pygmalion from 1938. Pygmalion being a British film uh, was not subject to American strictures because, of course, there was a lot more uh, censorship of films at this mm. time, which is why they were saying Great Balls of Fire and Fiddly Dee. I forgot how strong some southern accents were and it took me a little bit to get used to... Like, because it was... I think the sound was down a little bit at the start as well. Yeah. And being down and me not being used to such strong southern accents, I mm. had to just lean forward and be like, sorry, what? Speaking Do I need subtitles? <laughs> You're speaking English, but I'm not hearing... Luckily, they repeat the... themselves quite a few times. Yeah. So <laughs> just to get it through to everyone. Despite the lack of a sequel novel at the time, David O. Selznick and Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer were always interested in creating a sequel film. Gone with the Wind 2, or Too Gone, Too Windy. Back with the Wind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in 1975, Stephen Mitchells, then in control of the Mitchell estate, authorised a sequel to be jointly produced by MGM and Universal Pictures. Anne Edwards was commissioned to write the sequel as a novel, which would then be adapted into a screenplay. Um, the initial entry, uh, it was a 775-page manuscript entitled Terror, the Continuation of the Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Uh, sorry, of Gone with the Wind, not of the Gone with the of Wind. Of the Gone with the Wind. <laughs> but that's about as well. Yeah, so the full title, Terror, the Continuation of Gone with the Wind. It would have been set between 1872 and 1882, focusing on Scarlet's divorce from Rhett. But MGM was not satisfied with the story and the deal collapsed. Surely they would have cut that title down to just Terror. Uh, probably, right? but Terror, the Continuation of Gone with the Wind. <laughs> also, how long, like what time span did... Gone with the Wind, Go Over. I was trying to work it out in my head, going by how much the kids had grown. 16 years or something? No. I think it would probably be about 10 years. Yeah. Like, because you had the Civil War, 1861 to 1865 is the Civil War. Because the funny thing, the the pregnancy is 
too long. Yeah, the, the pregnancy but it's, is, in the book it's too long. Yeah, it's technically about twenty one months the pregnancy. Yeah, based she on <laughs> has the preg the gestational period of an elephant. Yeah, and the the author Margaret Mitchell was basically like, eh, we do things slower in the south. That was her yeah. only response. She was like, ah, eh, cocked it up, doesn't matter. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, I see. I don't a remake potentially a sequel. I don't think it needs one. Again, like I said before, I'd like to know what happened, but I also really enjoy films that don't give the audience everything that they yeah, just everything. Like it's, it's nice to be able to think about like and wonder. Hmm. Yeah, you make up your mind what yeah. happened, yeah. That, which is more fun. There is a novelized sequel though uh, to, to the book. Um, Margaret Mitchell uh, didn't write it. Uh, the sequel, uh, an authorized sequel, simply called Scarlet. Uh, was published in 1991 and was written by Alexandra Ripley. I know nothing about it. I don't know what happened. I just know that there is an official sequel out there in book form, if you so wish to see what what has been approved of. No. Okay. <laughs> well, then. <laughs> <laughs> That's just me. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't think so either. Uh, uh, yeah, I like... Again, it's that weird mix of wanting to know, but it's nice to just wonder and... Mm. Have it open-ended. Hmm. So, with all that being said, it's time to score the film. Now, uh, Dawson, the way that this works is uh, we score every film we watch on the Cinema Catch-Up Club out of 10, with 1 being, uh, whoop, that was terrible, I don't give a damn, uh, to 10 being, <laughs> well, hey, it's brilliant. Uh, to, as uh, it's your first time, we'll let Tegan score it first. Um, and it, <laughs> this is just a personal... <laughs> reflection of how we felt the film did it's you know it's it's very much just our own personal things you know i could say the best thing ever 10 out of 10 you'd still be fine to do a one and also you know you make up your own mind you know if you're listening at home like you know it's fine uh we just do this for fun tegan what score would you give a gone with the wind out of 10 i will give gone with the wind seven and a half stiff red petticoats out of 10 Mm. it's still lovely to watch it's still fun it's nice to watch Vivian Lee just create an incredible and interesting character Mm. Um, it's nice watching it with other people as well I've never (laughs) just watched it alone Mm. when I'm either sick or miserable Mm. um and need a bit of escapism. So it's kind of fun to watch all together and find new moments to appreciate or laugh at or, you know, be amazed by when we were looking at the art, like the the beauty of the artwork of the, you know, scenery and stuff with the cell painting and things. Like, that was very cool. So seven and a half stiff red petticoats out of ten is fitting. It is fitting. It is fitting. And I, I also just very much enjoyed that reveal of that she was wearing the petticoat. Yes. Mr. Red. I love that. <laughs> Mr. Red. Yeah. And that, again, just to very briefly go back to the film, that relationship I thought was really it's interesting. Great. And the fact that Rhett also says at one point, he's like, her opinion is one of the few that I actually respect. Yes. Or words to that effect. And I was like, that's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. What about yourself, Dawson? What would you give a Gone with the Wind out of 10? Um, I was actually going to give it Without the half, just seven dams given <laughs> out of ten. Mm. Um, especially, again, going back to the technically um, done really, really well from the time it was um, filmed in. Like, I, I just, 
yeah, and I was taken aback a little bit by how well it seemed to be done. Mm. And it was, I mean, like, yeah, it's an enjoyable story as well. It kind of ticked a lot of boxes for me. Um, but there were a few parts where I was like, does it have to be this long? <laughs> it absolutely doesn't. Um, no way. But, and it's weird because there are parts in this film which are suddenly really fast. Uh, like particularly towards the end when they're like, guys, we got to wrap this up. Oh my God. They just, everyone just started dropping down. Yeah. It was, it, it was kind of bizarre. I kind of feel the pacing was, was, I mean, it, it's a film from 80 years ago. The pacing that was expected then is very different to what we expect now. Um, and for me, I, I'm really surprised how much I like this film. Um, I was sort of expecting it to be more along the lines of something like Ben-Hur, where it is longer than it is interesting, which to me is not great with films. Uh, but I actually think, despite the fact this is almost four hours, I think this stays pretty interesting throughout. There's very few points where I was like, oh, get to the point. You know, it was... <laughs> I was enjoying it. I was engrossed with the performances. Um, you know, I I do think it is a little bit apologist for um, the attitudes towards slavery and the people that ran those things at yes, that time. Definitely. And that definitely does lose marks to me. Unticks some boxes yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like, oh, and <laughs> you don't get that mark. But looking at it as a piece of, of cinema, it does not feel 80 years old. It, f- it feels newer than something like Ben-Hur, which was made 20 years afterwards, which we've reviewed recently. Um, and it is absolutely worth seeing if you've got a day spare, um, I would say. A whole day. Yeah, a whole day. Just see the... <laughs> we've been here since 12. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it is it is not 12 anymore. We are <laughs> The sun is setting where we are right now. Um, but yeah, for me, a really, really enjoyable film. I will give it seven and a half fiddly Ds out of 10. <laughs> Because that's that's a great great balls swear word. Yeah, um, guys, we've done it. We've watched Gone with the Wind. Well done, everyone. I surprised myself watching it. Yes. Think, uh, yep. You've made it through. <laughs> so well it. done, uh, Tegan and Dawson. Thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the Cinema Catch Up Club. You are welcome. Thank you. And for those of you listening at home, guess what? We've got a Patreon. That's right. You can help us give our $300 a year to the uh, to those damn Yankees uh, by providing money towards us uh, over there. If you want to support us for as little as a dollar a month, you can do that. And all that money actually goes towards is things like um, supporting the hosting of the podcast online and buying the DVDs. Yes, I do buy DVDs uh, for the films where possible. Um, or we, you know, use streaming services, but all of that costs money. So uh, if you want to help us out, just go to patreon.com forward slash CCUC podcast. We're also available on Facebook. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us there, let us know your thoughts on Gone with the Wind. Just search for the Cinema Catch Up Club on Facebook. And of course, you can subscribe to get the episodes each and every week on Spotify and SoundCloud and iTunes and anywhere good podcasts are available. But that's all for this week. So until next time. That wind's back. Tomorrow is another day. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.